the Congo, the Congo River Valley is the world's second lung, the Amazon being the first. It's the world's second largest area of rainforest. And it's falling very fast. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Jeff Hill, author, journalist and conservationist. Jeff says deforestation and lack of access to clean water are hitting Africa hard. 90% of the trees cut down in Africa are cut down for firewood and to warm the house. And until we're able to fix that electricity deficit, we're not going to stop the forest from falling. And that to solve these problems, support needs to be offered in the right way. But people who are poor and don't have electricity, you cannot lecture them about climate change. They have, have no power in their home. All they want is the lights to be on, the heating to be on. They want the electricity. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Jeff Hill, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My delightful pleasure. Could you start by giving us your background? Well, I'm from Zimbabwe, uh, the country next to South Africa. I work between Johannesburg and the UK, and I've been a journalist for most of my adult life. Uh, I write for the Washington Times, for the Spectator, but I'm very interested in environmental issues, uh, conservation, plants, trees, animals. And in my spare time, I rescue snakes from people's homes, cobras, mambas, and what have you, and release them. I've been doing that since I was 10, much to the distress of my late mother. Sounds like quite a brave job to be doing. <laughs> Not once you get used to them. Snakes are more scared than we are. <laughs> so you recently released these two reports at Parliament about uh, energy needs in Africa. Uh, I know the first one is about um, deforestation. I was hoping you could talk to us about you know, what the problem is, the scale of it, and why it's happening. Uh, Lee, they were released at the House of Lords um, by the publisher, Net Zero, and there were two topics very close to my heart. Uh, they were commissioned by Net Zero, but they didn't interfere in any way in the editorial. Not a single word that I wrote was changed, and nor would I have accepted if it was. So with deforestation, the difficulty is that I'm not a climate change denier in any way. I can't believe that we've got 8 billion people on the planet, and that's not affecting every aspect of this little piece of rock that we share. And of course, it must be affecting the climate. But the danger is that if we think of deforestation in terms of climate change, then we throw up our hands and say, well, it's too difficult to do anything about. In fact, the reason for deforestation in Africa is much more simple uh, and much more fixable. It's that 600 million people on the continent don't have electricity, generally poor black Africans uh, and in countries where there's not enough electricity generated or the electricity is too expensive for them to buy. And as a result, they use firewood to cook and to keep warm. 90% of the trees cut down in Africa are cut down for firewood and to warm the house. And until we're able to fix that electricity deficit, we're not going to stop the forest from falling. How big of a problem is this? How many trees are being cut down? So 90% of the tree cover is gone in West Africa, 70% in East and Southern Africa, and it continues. There are plantations of eucalypt and fir trees that are grown commercially, but very often people can't afford those logs. Going to cut down a wild tree, of course, is free. There's a national park service, there's a police service to stop that. But you can't have a police officer strapped to every tree. Somebody's going to come at night. People are desperate. One must remember that of the 
30 highest cities in the world by altitude. 15, half of them are in Africa. Uh, so Nairobi is at 7,000 feet above sea level. Uh, Pretoria is at 4,000. Johannesburg's at 5,000. Joburg's at 5,000 feet above sea level. That's higher than Ben Nevis, the highest peak in the UK. And of course, it snows in winter and it gets very cold. And going down to zero is a frequent experience there. And people don't have electricity. There's enough electricity in South Africa sometimes. We do have power cuts. But people can't always afford the electricity. And as a result, they use firewood. And the rest of Africa, it's even worse. So, of course, when you clear tree cover, there's no place for monkeys, beetles, my beloved snakes, uh, and smaller wildlife as well. You strip the habitat completely. And you can't have conservation in a man-made desert, in an area where there's no trees, everything's been stumped, there's no cover for animals. So it's, it is a very big problem, but it's something we can fix if we were to increase the supply of electricity, something that British aid and American aid could focus on more closely. You talked a bit about the charcoal. It's not really something that we have much to do with here. Are there laws around the trading of charcoal? Yes, it's banned in Malawi, in Zambia, in many countries, but you will drive down a street in Blantyre, the biggest city in Malawi, named for David Livingstone's birthplace. He's still a hero in much of Africa because he drove the slave traders, the Arab slave traders, out of Africa. But in Blantyre, uh, the city in, in Malawi, although the charcoal trade is banned, uh, there's lines of charcoal sellers down the street. The police buy charcoal because they haven't got electricity at home. So it's very hard to stop it. What makes charcoal so popular? is the 20% effect. If you take a kilogram of wood, when you turn it into charcoal, it burns down to 200 grams. So it weighs one-fifth. And so as a result, somebody who doesn't have a car, who perhaps has got a cart, a horse-drawn cart, maybe even a bicycle, can strap half a tree onto a bicycle. Uh, you can't ride the bicycle, but or into a cart and take it into the market to sell because you've reduced it in weight and mass. It sets fire much more quickly than wood. It reaches a high temperature much faster than wood. It burns hotter than wood. We couldn't have had the Royal Navy during the Tudor era without, era without charcoal because it, uh, and coal, of course, because uh, we couldn't smelt metal. And uh, charcoal is therefore very popular. How do you eradicate it in a country where there's no alternative power supply? This is the problem, trying to fix that deficit of electricity. So it's not the corporations going in there chopping down all these trees. It's the people who live there need to cook and they need to keep warm and, and they will go out and chop trees down because that's the culture. There are, it's not just culture, it's a necessity, of course. Yeah. It's what people in Britain used to do 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. Uh, no, there, there is commercial deforestation that happens, but it's rare. There's logging in the Congo with firms that come in and, and take out large areas of forest. The Congo, Congo River Valley is the world's second lung, the Amazon being the first. It's the world's second largest area of rainforest. And it's falling very fast, mostly because of firewood. Uh, and people just don't have an alternative. You've got countries like Burkina Faso, where about 8%, that's 8% of people are on the grid. Wow. We're used to in rich countries or well-off countries, middle-income countries, just turning on a light, and it's there. These are people who don't even have wires connected to their homes, 
And so until we're able to do something about that, we can't stop the trees from falling. And that's why I said, I'm not a denier of climate change. What I'm saying is that the falling forest is not a consequence of climate change. Mm. It's a consequence of people not having electricity in their homes. How you create that electricity, obviously one needs to be careful in not damaging the planet in creating that electricity, but create it we must on a very large scale. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the forests of Africa being one of the lungs of the world. Can you talk us through what, what the issues will be if we don't stop the, the deforestation? So it has a major effect, obviously, on the climate uh, in the trees during the day breathe in CO2 and breathe out oxygen, or they do an exchange. Breathe is the wrong term. But uh, trees are our major way of turning CO2 back into oxygen, or turn, changing it into oxygen, should we say. And so we need trees, and we need lots of trees, and we need lots of forest. Britain has no room to talk. Again, going back to the Tudor eras, era, it took 5,000 oak trees to build one battleship. So when the Tudors, when Henry and Elizabeth made these great navies, of course, that's why there's so much grassland in the UK, because the forest has been cut down. Scotland still has its forest, and beautiful it is, too. Uh, but the forests of the earth are very important in providing us with the... It, it, it is where our oxygen comes from. Our oxygen comes from plants. And it's vital that we try and keep these areas, but also for biodiversity. It's no good trying to save chimpanzees and gorillas from extinction if they don't have a forest to live in. Jane Goodall, the primate pioneer, uh, has spoken uh, very eloquently about this. And the, Lee, the, I think the difficulty is that in, if you don't have electricity, if you don't have a job because there's no industry in town, because there's not enough power to create fa factories, if you're struggling with that, if you're living in a, an iron shack, a single-room shack, and you're going to bed hungry, you don't lie awake worrying about how the weather might be 50 years from now. So it's no good lecturing people in Africa about climate change. They want electricity, and they want it now. Many of these countries are turning to coal. India uses a lot of coal. Germany has just been starting to use coal again. Botswana, South Africa, Zimbabwe, they get most of the electricity from coal. I'm not a fan of coal. It is dirty stuff, but we've learned, uh, thankfully, from research in Germany, in India, in South Africa, how to burn it a lot cleaner. But we need massive levels of baseload power. And that's got to come from hydro, from dams. It's got to come from gas or coal until we can bring the technology of solar and wind up to where they can produce large levels of power. And hopefully that won't be too far off. But people who are poor and don't have electricity, you cannot lecture them about climate change. They have, have no power in their home. All they want is the lights to be on heating to be on. They want the electricity. And it's our job, if they are using fossil fuels, to help them off those fuels, but in the meantime, to help them to burn them as clean as we possibly can. This is not a time for colonial mentality. Uh, we come from rich countries and tell you to turn off your coal power or gas-powered uh, uh, power stations. Uh, it is not our job to do that. I think we can debate these things. But we have to be very careful not having a colonial mentality and to work with local people on the way they would like to produce power and help them to make it as clean as possible and ultimately to transition to other means of generation. And how much does um, population changes feed into this, not just growing population, but people moving from the countryside 
to live in the city? Well, the, <clears throat> I wrote two papers. One was on forest. The other one was water, and which plays very much to your question. Both of them come down to your question. And a lot of people in, in rural Africa don't have water in the home. They don't have a tap in the home. They don't have a flushing toilet. This is in a continent where we have the Nile, the Congo, the Volta, Limpopo, Zambezi. I say Limpopo, if you remember Rudyard Kipling and the Just So stories, the great gray greasy Limpopo and the elephant's child. We have lakes like Victoria and Tanganyika. We have Kariba, the dam on the border of Zimbabwe and Zambia, one of the biggest dams in the world. And people don't have water in their home. It's because there's not enough electricity to pump that water onto a high area, onto an area of elevation, as you do in the UK. So it can gravity feed down to homes. This is, again, this dearth of electricity that leads to that. Uh, and the same with uh, people cutting down firewood. So if you were in front of the British government now and they said, give us some solutions, what would you put forward? I would suggest that we get away from the idea of purely solar panels and wind power because it's not going to catch up the deficit. It's not going to catch up the enormous amount of power shortage that we have. The other problem with uh, solar panels, of which I'm a great fan, I might add. Mm. Um, well, I, Africa is quite sunny. Yes, of course. You've got sunshine. Our difficulty is that solar panels get stolen. So we have an epidemic of theft of solar panels. I did a story with 14 farmers who had converted to solar about three years ago. Two of them still have their panels uh, because the solar panels have been stolen. And I guess it's in an area where there's 70% youth unemployment. And of course, in order to generate electricity, your solar panels need to be in the open so that they're catching the sunlight so people can see them. And you're putting 10,000 pounds of equipment out in the open where people are walking past who don't have a loaf of bread and you wonder why they get stolen. So you need to build a large solar farm with enormous levels of protection. That doesn't mean you can't do that, but we need to look at practical solutions of producing a lot of electricity in a very short time. Nuclear is a wonderful way to go. Again, if you can keep it safe and keep it clean, nuclear is a wonderful way to go. If people are already using coal, help them to burn it cleanly. If they want to use gas, help them to use it as cleanly as we can. But don't go in there and say, I'm the big white one. Those days are gone. You know, we, uh, people resent this. Uh, come in to help. Don't come in to lecture and to hector. I think that's the way we persuade countries in Africa to come across to our way of thinking. When the West does kind of go in to help, it, the, the understanding of the situation and the problems is, is not really deep enough, and so the help tends to just be a bit surface and then doesn't really achieve what it wants to achieve. I think it is a great problem, Lee, that our environmental movement in wealthy countries, and this is in the UK and the US, tends to be predominantly well-off, predominantly white, and that's not a racist remark. There's, it's wonderful that anybody is getting involved in trying to save the environment. But I don't think we've sold the issues to the working people in the UK, in the US, to the point where they're willing to put their tax money into helping with some of these solutions. I think it has become an elitist cause. Uh, and that's not good. You need to get the massive public opinion behind that. And I, I'm not suggesting it's been hijacked at all. I just think that it's a very narrow base of people who have come to dominate the arguments about the environment. That's not to say their arguments are always wrong, 
is to say their arguments come from a particular point of view. Again, if you are living in a one-room shack in Africa and you haven't got enough food, you're not worried about the same things that perhaps an Oxford Don is worried about. As a journalist working between Africa and Britain and the US, I'd really love to hear your perspective on how you feel the Western media reports on Africa. I mean, does, it, does it hit the right issues? Does it prioritize the right issues? It's very difficult because as the years have gone by, the reader's attention span has shrunk. So whereas when I was a kid, there'd be a 2,000-word story, perhaps, in the Sunday Times, it's now an 800-word story. And journalists have to cramp all the information into a much smaller space. And so I, don't, I think we, we need more magazines and newspapers that perhaps have less stories, but that go into greater detail and greater depth. We need to look at the problems behind simply the symptoms that lie on, on the surface. No, I think journalists try and do a good job of it. One of the difficulties is what I call the cabin crew syndrome. And this is there are so many people who want to work on airlines because uh, it's a great job. You're flying around the world uh, for free, if you like, and getting paid for it, that airlines have been able to ask for master's degrees before they take somebody on as a, as a cabin crew. Uh, and in journalism, there's so many people who want to get into journalism that newspapers and broadcasters have been able to get very picky. Can't get a job in the BBC unless you have a university degree, maybe sometimes even a master's degree, because you're able to, because the queue of people trying to get into journalism is so huge. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's professionalized the industry. The difficulty is that you end up with journalists who come from a very narrow spectrum of society. They come from that spectrum whose parents could afford to keep them at school or at university for seven or nine or 10 years while they took their masters. We come from an educated elite. And again, I'd like to see more journalists being drawn from people who perhaps have had another job for 10 or 12 years, held on a real job. Journalism is a real job, but who've held down another job. I remember when I worked on The Australian in uh, Sydney, one of Murdoch's papers, they had a great policy under the editor of the time, Les Hollings, where if he wanted an environmental editor, he would go and find someone who was a zoologist or a biologist and teach them how to write. Mm. Uh, if he wanted consumer affairs, he'd go and find somebody who was in that field and teach them how to write. I remember our aviation editor had a science degree and was then taught how to write. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, uh, to go and get people who've held on a real job. Uh, and again, journalism is a real job. It held on a different job, should we say, a practical job and then teach them how to write, rather than journalism just being dominated by people who love writing, but who have got a master's degree in journalism and perhaps not too much experience elsewhere. And so do you think this issue is directly affecting what the West learns about Africa and the reporting on Africa? I, Lee, I don't think most people in the West worry too much about Africa. Uh, you know, I've worked in the American media for a long time, and no disrespect to my great American friends and colleagues, but most Americans struggle to find Africa on the map. Uh, I think in the UK it's a little bit better because there was an empire here and there's probably a lot more people from Africa living here who, who have moved here in the current generation from Africa. There's a more of an African presence in the UK, in France as well. 
but I don't think people worry about it a lot. Uh, we need to get this energy issue, this environmental issue, the water in the home, because that's where you get illness and typhoid spreading when there's no proper plumbing and you don't have flush toilets. And if we're going to save the forest, and this is, this is something very close to my heart, if we're going to save the forest, then yes, we, we need to get these, these energy issues, uh, wherever the energy comes from, right? whether it's solar or wind or hydro, uh, whether it's from the cleanest coal you can possibly burn while you need to do that, while you're phasing to something else, whether it's from gas. But don't just leave people without electricity until in 20 or 30 years' time, solar catches up to the point where we can produce mass levels of solar power. There won't be any forest left by then. This is an issue that affects the West just the same, isn't it? Because if they're the, the lungs of the world, well, we need that forest to be there. We do, and uh, Poland has got great forest. So there's talks about rewilding bison, which of course extinct in the UK and have been for a long time, but there are still wild bison in Poland. There are wild bears in Poland. And the reason for that is because Poland has a forest where they can live. Eastern Europe still has some great diversity of wildlife, but it does live in the forest. Bears um, and, and the larger mammals there, they need a place where they can be safe. They need a food source. They need cover. They need safe space in which to breed. They need caves that are not disturbed where they can raise cubs. So this environment, uh, a pristine environment, is, is desperately important. I'd like to see a lot more forestation across Europe, both to help uh, generate more oxygen, but also because it's such an important environment. But Lee, there is, there, there is something important in that. It's no good bringing eucalypt trees from Australia because they grow quickly and planting them where you had uh, tamarind trees or in, in Africa you had acacia trees. Indigenous tree species in Africa are very slow growing, but you must have the patience to do that. We need to replant indigenous forest. It's no good bringing in plants from elsewhere, pine forest or, uh, or eucalypts. They don't provide the same environment at ground level, and um, we, we need to do that. We need to rebuild the forest and conserve what is still there and stop it being cut down. But we need to stop people from having a need to cut down that forest. And that need really is to cook and to keep warm. Jeff Hill, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Lee, thank you for having me.